Blitz, screen pass, Yeldon to the 20, to the 10. Touchdown, Alabama! <laughs> What is up? Welcome to the Sportscasters Proper Podcast. It is episode number two of our third season. Wednesday, November 7th, 2012, as we took a day off uh, to honor election night. And congratulations to President Barack Obama, who was elected to a second term last night. And Don, we kind of talked about this a little bit on the other podcast, but it sure does make a great little intro. Uh, it kind of election night kind of feels like a sporting event, huh? It does. Maybe a little bit too much, but, uh, yes, it certainly does. I was glued to the TV. There's a lot of drama there as you watch the states come in and the colors change and yeah. the scoreboard changes just like it does in a sporting event. And there was a lot of swings yesterday. I mean, the first group of states that came in were all Romney states. Right. And he had that lead for a long time. But then the states just started coming in. and Yeah, Ohio and Florida came in, and then it was like, it's over. As soon as Ohio fell to the president, the networks called it at, I think, 11-15. Except for, except for Kyle Rove. Kyle Rove did not want to call it at 11 <laughs> No, even though the experts in the building with him, yeah, he that was entertaining. Wait a bit longer. Uh, as I said, welcome to the second episode of Season 3. Don't forget, you can still check out the first episode of Season 3 on our website. Last week, we did something really different. As we talk to Dan Giesling, uh, the winner of Big Brother 10 and the runner-up of Big Brother 14. And it was pretty cool because we did, I guess, achieve what we hoped with the interview. And that was expose the podcast to a completely different audience. Uh, There was one gal on Twitter who I should give a plug to who said that she found the podcast from a friend on Facebook who found it because we had posted on Dan's Facebook. Okay. Can you follow that map sort of? Sure. We post on Dan's Facebook. Someone who likes Dan from the show finds it, posts it on her Facebook, and a gal named Sumi underscore DC found us and posted how she had enjoyed the interview on a very popular Big Brother message board. Uh, called Big Brother Media at jokersupdates.com. I want to give them a plug too. And the post that she made got 627 views, and uh, it did seem like we got a spike on our site as well. So thank you to all the Big Brother fans who maybe joined us last week and maybe decided to stick around for a second show. Uh, you can find us at www.sports-casters.com. I should mention I'm the host of the show, Steve <laughs> Bennett. Uh, the co-host is Don Russ. Hello. We always It's kind of a running joke because we never say our own names for right. whatever reason. We just assume everybody knows us. Yeah, we're on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Also, we have a second podcast for your listening pleasure, which focuses on the world of Twitter, or focuses on the world of football. Right. And that can be found at www.footballnation.com. If it's not right there on the front page, click at the podcast link at the top, and uh, you will find us. Uh, the show is also called The Sportscasters. And then this week we have a really entertaining interview with Richard, du- with Richard Deitch 
from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. On today's episode of the podcast that you're listening to now, we got a lot of business kind of to take care of. Number one, we're going to talk to Lee Jenkins, who's appeared on this show more than any other person. And we're going to preview the NBA season. That's about five or six games in at this point with mm-hmm. Lee. Also, we're going to talk to Luke Wynn about the college basketball season that's going to be getting underway. The Sports Illustrated College Basketball preview issue is this week's edition of their magazine and Luke's going to join us to talk about the college basketball season and also we're going to talk to the person who's appeared the second most times on the Sportscasters podcast John Wertheim about a bunch of different things he traveled to England with the NFL for their game in England we're also going to talk to him about the Penn State scandal a year later and talk a little bit about this new magazine television show that Sports Illustrated has created with NBC. We're also going to update the book club. We've got a serious question for you there. Uh, we're going to do five on fantasy and believe it or not, I got off to a good start and pick four and Don didn't. <laughs> but before we can get to any of that, let's start this with uh, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Uh, One thing that loyal listeners of the Sportscasters proper and now the Sportscasters with Football Nation maybe don't like too much is that our first thing on both shows is usually the same. Usually we look back at the week that was in the NFL. Not the case this week. We know that we're going to get this podcast up on Wednesday, so you're going to be able to listen to it before the first game has been played in the NFL. But usually Football Nation takes an extra day to go up. So the decision that we made this week is that we will look back at week 9 of the NFL season on this podcast and look ahead to week 10 of the NFL season on that podcast. Yeah, maybe to, to talk shop a little bit on the air, maybe we should do that every week. Yeah, it I'm, probably I, makes a lot of I'm sense. I'm sure if you listen close enough, you could tell which one Show we recorded second yep. because it'd be a little bit less spontaneous and it sounds like we're saying things we've already said before. But, uh, yeah, so we're doing the weekend review, and I wrote down a few interesting storylines to me. Uh, one... If you're a fantasy player, the big one is Doug Martin. Uh, just exploded for four touchdowns and 200 some odd yards. Like have it here 247, his, I think two, it was. 251 he 251. ended up with. Now, uh, that game was kind of back and forth all day. The Buccaneers, I want to say pulled away at the end, but they yeah. did allow the Raiders to score 22 points in the fourth quarter. The Raiders got it to within three, got the ball back because, for whatever reason, Greg Schiano gave Martin a break. And put Blunt in, and he fumbled. Oh, <laughs> I um, didn't see that. That's funny. Then the Raiders got the ball back, and Carson Palmer was pretty much intercepted on a, his worst pass of the day. And so, then the Bucks got the ball back and scored that kind of tack-on touchdown. Yeah. So in a game that I imagine the Buccaneers were favored, they do end up winning. And like I said, Martin has the big day. The interesting thing to me in that game while watching was after the game was sealed away and they could have been taking these, I'm assuming Greg Schiano makes this call. Uh, he sends Martin back out there and runs and runs. Um, Shiano already not the most popular guy in the NFL. And if he was trying to get Martin 
to the record, he was like 45. It's like 296 or something crazy, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Peterson, just short of 300. He was he was still kind of far off it, and he would have had to break another one. And granted, he did break like three that game. But still, it's just an odd. He ended up losing five yards on that series, right? Yeah, he got. I know he took a couple for a loss, and then they finally took their knees. But Greg Schiano is uh, not making friends in the NFL. No, probably not. Uh, one thing that I think this week illustrated to me about the league is it's there's a lot of streaky teams out there this year. A lot of teams who, like we said, there was a time where you just couldn't figure everyone out, and it's because these teams they'll go on streaks, then they won't. I mean. There's a bunch of teams we can look at. Minnesota lost their second straight game. Yep. They're streaking downward. Detroit, they're suddenly streaking upward in that division. Saints have now three, won three of the last four. Tampa Bay suddenly putting a couple wins together to get to four and four. Um, Seattle has been up and down all year. Arizona started the season 4-0. Four four and and oh, now yeah. they've lost their last five, potentially headed to a six straight loss uh, this week with a tough game. And the AFC, you know, um, the Colts, they started slow. Um, then everything changed. Cancer in their building. And suddenly they're a 5-3 and three, uh, playoff team. Denver started slow. They're streaking. San Diego, up and down, gets healthy against the Chiefs. Um, it's just been, a, it's been the way of the league this year. It feels like it's really hard to get a read on these teams. The Giants, who went to San Francisco a few weeks ago and played maybe the best game of the year just don't look quite as good against the Steelers in a home game and you wonder was it distractions with the hurricane there or what but yeah one team that, a really streaky league this year right and one team that you beat up a little bit on the other podcast is the uh, Philadelphia Eagles they started three and one all of a sudden they're looking at three and five and in a must-win game with Dallas this this week and so. they're just in squall that team is in squalor they're just disaster so Going through the week that was, Chiefs at Chargers. The Chargers win a game they have to, and the Chiefs kind of look like they might be the worst team in the league. Yeah, Chiefs and Jaguars seem to be fighting for that with maybe the there's another one in the NFC. Yeah, the uh, I'm not sure who you're talking about. Maybe Carolina. They're, Carolina, yeah. Two wins. Yeah. Um, the Bills lose a game they're expected to. I guess they kept it close. They, yeah, to Houston. They, uh, I heard an interesting comment on local radio here where in August, if you heard the defense gave up around 380 total yards of offense, you'd be pissed about that because this defense was supposed to be one of the best D-lines in the league. And now all of a sudden, eight weeks into the season, you hear they only give up 21 points and only give up 380 yards of offense. And it's like, well, that's kind of a moral victory. You didn't win any. So... Boy, the Bills' season is looking like another lost season, another season of disappointment that started with maybe some high hopes in the offseason. But I imagine we don't talk too much about them for the rest of the year unless they're heading toward a first overall pick or something. You got all over the Bears, rightly so, on the other podcast for running up the score on the Titans. Uh, you can listen to that to hear that. But I guess what we did find out, well, I don't know if we needed this game to find out, but the Bears are very good. Yep, uh, they're very good on both sides of the ball, and whether they're running up the score or not, it really didn't matter. They were going to blow them out either. They blew them out either way. It'll be interesting to see how. I mean, this is when they play Houston this week, though. That's really like the second test they've had this season, and the first one they failed kind of miserably in Green Bay. So, uh, but yeah, they they're beating up on some bad teams. Um, there was something in the Giants and Steelers game you wanted to mention. Oh right? yeah, uh, Pittsburgh ends up winning the game. 
20. 24-20 on the road. Uh, 14-zip fourth quarter. Yeah, so impressive win by them. They lose uh, their receiver, Antonio Brown, maybe to a high ankle sprain. It seems to be going around under, huh? under question how, how severe of a high ankle sprain or whatever. But there was a play in the game. I have the Red Zone Network, uh, and I was watching, and they showed the Ben Roethlisberger fumble, which I believe was a picked up for a touchdown. Yes, by Michael Bowley, linebacker for the Giants. Now, I'm not trying to beat up on the guy in the Red Zone Network whose name is... Well, it's Siciliano on mine, but that's not yours. No, right? I, uh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I'm not trying to beat him up for it, but that was clearly a throw, or so I thought. And I didn't hear anyone on the broadcast. Scott Hansen. Scott Hansen, yeah. Uh, I didn't hear anyone on the broadcast mention that either. That looked to be clearly It a looked throw. like a tuck rule kind of a thing. The ball went forward. It was in his hand when it, went, when it, when it left his hand. His arm was going forward. I, I didn't get that as far as I know. I haven't heard even too much about it from the league. I saw Tuesday morning quarterback mentioned it a little bit about how they blew the call, but just a really strange call. And luckily, I guess football gods are with them, and they won that game. Uh, Falcons have a bit of a snoozer. Yeah, they just sleptwalked through the game. Yeah, six to six at the half, and then they scored six more points than the Cowboys did in the fourth quarter. The Cowboys did another terrible job managing the clock in the fourth quarter. Typical typical Cowboys mistakes again, and that's why they're in the position that they're in. Uh, We talked a little bit about how bad the Eagles looked on Monday night. Boy, the Saints are going to just dread the fact that they blew that Kansas City game and that Carolina game in the first month of the season. Because if they win those two games against teams that have three total wins... Right. You're talking about a five and three team, not a three and five team. Yep. So those games are going to haunt the Saints and Saints fans all season. Uh, I mentioned the Lions got a big win against the Jaguars. Not that tough to do, but it's going to set up a big game between them and the Vikings this week, where we'll find out maybe who is going to be a contender and who's a pretender there. That's such a tough division that it might not. It might matter. get two wild cards maybe out of that division, but they're going to have to. I mean, Minnesota, we've talked about it before. Their schedule is brutal. And uh, Peyton Manning got another win yeah. uh, against the Bengals. And I, Peter King, I think, brought this to my attention. But what did, have you? can you ever remember a more incredible race for maybe a somewhat meaningless trophy in the NFL Comeback Player of the Year? But who, who are you going to vote for there? Yeah, the who, guy who had three neck surgeries to come back and play incredible quarterback, the guy who completely ruined his knee in January and is leading the NFL in rushing. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, and they're two stars, two huge names in the league in Manning and Peterson. So probably the best comeback player of the year award race in history is going on right now. <laughs> it's probably true, yeah. I mean, I can't think of a, a better one. So, yeah, it was a good week, not a great week of football. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention, which we've mentioned a couple times, has the gimmick run out in Washington with Robert Griffin III? I don't know. I'm not saying he's not talented and athletic, but I wonder if the way that they were winning earlier in the season with the triple option and a lot of the creative things they were doing is kind of figured out. Because that's two weeks in a row where it didn't work. Teams seem to tend to figure out. And they've actually lost three games in a row now. Running quarterbacks. I mean, 
Cam Newton's struggling a little bit this year. He looked to be like Griffin last year. He started off with, what, three 400-yard games or two 400-yard games? Well, I think what happens is that these running quarterbacks, they have great instincts when you're just letting them play the game because they're such great athletes. Right. When they're playing an instinct, there's, there's something great about them. But then when something happens, like the concussion that Griffin had, um, and you try to muzzle these guys, and it hasn't necessarily happened in Washington with Griffin yet, but you try to cre- you try to turn them into pocket passers, and then they start thinking instead of using instincts, and I think that's when things change for them. But I think what's different about Griffin and Washington is that it's more about scheme right now, not what they've done to him as a player. It's about the scheme that, that, that worked early in the season, uh, maybe when teams didn't have the film that they have, uh, when the, the Redskins were able to start 3-3, three and three. and I just wonder if now that they've lost three straight, is that scheme, has that scheme hit a wall? And I guess they have the bye week now to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, neither guy has much of a supporting cast either. Uh, They're still building teams. I right. mean, nobody thought that the Redskins were going to challenge for the Super Bowl. You know, and to do things that they've done this year, like win in New Orleans and have an electrifying win on an unbelievable fourth and one run at home at Minnesota, that might be enough for this year. I guess my point is just the emergence of Alfred what's, Morris. What's the nice. what's the plan long term for Griffin here? Because probably triple option offense isn't <laughs> going to work in the NFL. No, I think term. you have to turn him into a little bit more of a traditional quarterback. I don't think you can handcuff him. I think sometimes that seems to be done to Vic. And Vic just might be done. We talked about Philadelphia and the mess Especially in Philadelphia. But you talk about how that guy seems to do the best when he's just being instinctive and running around and stuff like that. But that's what also makes him an injury risk. And It's a dangerous job, especially when you're exposed like the quarterback is constantly. And Aaron Rodgers seems to tread that line the best. He's a bit of a running quarterback, but, I mean, he's also one of the best passing quarterbacks in the league. And I'm not saying necessarily they can be Aaron Rodgers, but maybe they move a little bit more toward that without totally – you don't want to totally neuter them as far as their running ability goes because that's what got them into the league. Right. All right, probably move on. Yeah. All right, my second thing today, uh, the death to the BCS – is maybe going to come a year late for yeah, some teams. Uh, the NCAA is to a point in their season. Uh, Alabama pulled off a great victory over the weekend against LSU, and we played that clip over the top. Really was a, a fantastic game. Very, very exciting to watch. And it aired just a few minutes after the Notre Dame game had ended, which was uh, really exciting. You could see that as a trap game for Notre Dame, and they, they got out of it. But what you have right now is what would be an incredible four-team playoff, right? Right. Alabama, Oregon, Kansas State, and Notre Dame, all 9-0. and Also, Ohio State is 10-0, and but they're on probation, so they're not eligible for a postseason play oh, anyway right. this year. So despite them being a fifth team, they're not in it. They're not in it. They're the number five team in the AP poll, but they're not in it. They're on probation, so forget them. But it looks like... I mean, who are the two teams that deserve to play in the national championship game? I can't answer that question. Well, I, don't, to, uh, I don't know. It's probably Alabama and someone else, right? It's, pro- it's I mean, Alabama is a 60-vote unanimous first overall team in right. the AP poll right now. 
So if Alabama runs the table in the best conference in the nation, blah, 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 SEC, they're going to get a spot. So who's the other team? Is it Kansas State, who might win the Big 12, which might be the second best league? Is it Oregon, who might end up having two wins against uh, USC, who's suddenly 6-3? and three? Um, is it, Or is it Notre Dame? I, I don't know. My gut tells me it's Kansas State. Uh, a lot of people will probably fight for Oregon, who's currently number two in the AP poll. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, I, I, I have a feeling. I have a feeling three of these four teams are going to be undefeated, and one of the teams is going to say, "Damn, we were one year too early." Yeah, I mentioned on Facebook. Uh, not that everyone listening is a Facebook friend of mine or anything, but it seems like Notre Dame is kind of like. Maybe the Yankees, like when they're when they're not in the playoffs. I mean, not that the Yankees are ever not in the playoffs, but people come out of the woodwork. So oh yeah, when Notre bit... Dame's good. You... Wow, they got a lot of fans. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, call them bandwagon team a little bit, maybe. But I posted on my Facebook wall after seeing all these posts. I just said, "Congratulations to Notre Dame. Your quest to become a BCS snub continues." Right. Because unfortunately for them, that's probably what's going to happen. And they're fourth right now, and I don't see a lot that can boost them. They're playing a two and seven Boston College team this week. Right. Then they play Wake Forest at home. And Wake Forest is a 5-4 and four team, not ranked, so you're not going to get any boost from any computers or anything there. And then they finish against USC, but where will USC be by the time they right. get to them? You know, USC still has to play a ranked UCLA team before. If USC loses to that ranked UCLA team, they're, they're a 7-4 and four team going into that game, maybe not a top 25 team. Right. So is that a big win for Notre Dame if they get it? No, probably not. I don't know. So they might be the odd team out. All right, the NHL, uh, yeah, has canceled the Winter Classic, and that's the bad news. The good news, I guess, if you take it as good news, is it sounds like they're making serious talks now and that there's a decent possibility that hockey can come back. Some kind of abbreviated season like like, the NBA did last year. Right. Puck Daddy on his blog says that it sounds like the best-case scenario is December 1st. Like It's possible they start before that. And they said Jonathan Willis of Cult of Hockey, I'm not sure what that is, but it's blog or something, he ran through some scenarios based on the regular season schedule, which averages one game every 2.2 games. And he said 2.2 days, I'm sorry. And if they start December 1st, that's a 70-71 to 71 game season. Fine. I'm okay with that. Some people would argue that's probably better for the league in general because you have less injuries, uh, maybe a little bit more rest. I think when people propose like a shorter season, they usually mean over the same amount of time. So the quality of the games would be better. But I can deal with 70 games. I think much beyond that, I don't want to see a 40-game season like in 94. It just doesn't feel the same to me. You don't have to go through the rigors of... 60 feels like the basement to me. Yeah. Give me a 60-game season. The other problem is I'm as big a hockey fan as most people out there, or, or bigger hockey fan than most people out there. I would say I'm a little better... I'm, I'm more, way, way more than a casual fan, and I haven't missed it. Uh, maybe it's the football, football season helps. being on Thursday, yeah. Sunday, yeah. Monday. But, boy, if they lose me, and I'm not saying they will. As soon as hockey comes back, I'll be watching the Sabres, my team, every time they play. But that said, I'm not missing it, and that's a problem because people that are just casual fans might not even go back, and especially because this lockout's stupid and nothing is going to change on the ice because of it. Uh 
it's it's just bad news. I haven't. It, I thought about it today when I heard this. I haven't missed hockey. Maybe come late late or early February when the Super Bowl's over. Maybe then I would have been like, oh man, I'd be watching hockey now. But there was one day for me uh, where I remember thinking, man, I'm mad at the NHL, and it was Halloween because I was sick on Halloween. And I didn't go get to go with Miss Caster and Colston to do Halloween things at her parents' house. Okay. Was home alone. Nothing was on television because apparently you can't run anything but horror movies <laughs> on Halloween. Halloween, which was a Wednesday. Right. And I thought, man, it would be great if there was a hockey game on because I'm just laying here and I'm bored and my DVR is clear and I got nothing. That, But that's it. Other than that, I've made it through. Yeah, and I I misspoke. It was the '95 season that was the shortened season, I think. But uh, right, '94 was the Rangers Cup season. Right, right. But yeah, so hockey come back. I'll be here. But if you wait too much longer, I'm not sure if the casual fans will be. All right, my third thing uh, was the New York City Marathon controversy. Kind of played out pretty interestingly, I thought. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg in handling all this sandy stuff is probably going to get high marks in a lot of areas, but he's not going to get a very high mark with the way he handled the situation with the runners and the marathon in general. And this story has been covered pretty well by the mainstream press, so we don't have to go too far into it. But basically it went like this. His initial press conference canceled some things like the debut of the Nets in Brooklyn. Uh, It didn't cancel the marathon initially. Okay. So runners came to the city. Hotels had to make decisions about who was going to keep rooms. Was it going to be runners or was it going to be evacuees? Evacuees. Uh, The race starts in Staten Island, which was one of the hardest hit areas. Um, Staten Island was a hotel in Staten Island did make the decision not to honor reservations. Wow. To keep their people that live in the community there. Over 300, I believe, generators were brought in specifically for the race. And resources were going to have to be deployed to the race that would have normally been helping pick up the city from the disaster. Yeah. Then, ultimately, on Friday night, I believe, the race was canceled. And I just thought it kind of the whole thing stunk because it was overly optimistic thinking to think you could run the race and it should have been canceled from the beginning. Could they not have delayed it or something until I mean, I don't know. This is a big disaster for New York City and New Jersey, so I don't know how long it's going to take them to clean up. But boy, yeah, that's a that's a bad call. I wanted to mention it because one thing that gets overlooked is people who run a race like the New York City Marathon for charity. Oh. And Jeff Perlman did a great job, a friend of our podcast, of writing a really touching column about a guy who had raised a lot of money for his dad from pledgers who agreed to give the money based on his completion of the marathon. His dad's suffering from ALS, and the money was going to go to a cure. Everyone who knows anything about ALS knows what a devastating disease that is. Right. The runner ended up running 11 miles through his community and then finishing the last... 14 miles or so on the track where he trained. Um, It's a really touching story because as he ran on the track, people started to show up. Oh, really? His family started to show up. Um, 
there was a nearby sporting event, maybe a soccer game, and the referee stopped the game and said, you got to see what's happening here. Really? And another distance runner asked if he could run with the son of the man who's suffering. And he got to finish the, the race on the track uh, and embrace his father and get the money. And go to jeffperlman.com. You can find a link to the column which ran on si.com. And uh, maybe there's a link to somewhere where you can help raise more. But I thought it was a great story, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Because the race isn't just about Kenyans who come in to win another race. Right. There's more there, and it's unfortunate the way things played out. Now, I'm not saying – please don't email me and say – why are you advocating for the race? I wasn't. I think the race oh, right. should have no, been no. canceled from the start. I think the mistake that was made is that, you know, to wait till Friday to cancel it when runners come and hotels had to make decisions yeah. and generators were there just sitting there that could have been used for other things. That was a mistake, but I just wanted to point out there's other things that were lost than just Kenyans dominating. <laughs> but those things find a way of being accomplished anyway. And Jeff Perlman brought great light to that. That's a really cool story. I hadn't heard about that. Uh, my story is a little less light. Uh, the but funny, the goal here wasn't to raise money to ALS, but may, but to help people in the crowd win something. Uh, Joe Noah regrets a three pointer. He took at the end of Tuesday nights, uh, bulls, I think it's Washington, right? Orlando. Orlando, Sorry, Bulls-Orlando magic game. Uh, Apparently he was yelled at by his coach for taking a three-pointer with 3.8 seconds left. Which he missed. Which he missed in the Bulls' 99-93 victory over Orlando. Uh, The coach said, I talked to him about it, but I'm going to keep that private. Well, it turns out the reason he made that or took that shot was because – in Bulls home games, they have a promotion where if you score 100 points or if the team scores 100 points, the fans all get Big Macs. <laughs> yes. Uh, Joakim Noah says, I got caught up in the moment, he admitted after the game. Despite the fact – this part was – there's a few parts of the story that are amazing to me. Despite the fact that the Bulls won that game, many fans booed the team as the final buzzer sounded. So apparently in Chicago, they really wanted those Big Macs. Oh, yeah. Uh, Noah goes on to say, I regretted it a little bit. It wasn't a good shot. And this is one of the best quotes I've ever read. He says, you have to respect the game because you never know what can happen in a game. I just got caught up in the moment, and I was trying to get the people a Big Mac. They really wanted a Big Mac, and I felt like not only did I take the shot and miss the shot, we didn't even get the Big Mac. Next time, I won't take that three-pointer. <laughs> that's that's oh, a ridiculous quote. quote. Uh, and the other thing that was amazing to me is, I can't figure out what his coach was so mad about. Was he mad that his center was taking three pointers? Was he mad? Did he think? Is it a running up the score kind of thing? Yeah, fastless dribble the ball. But at that point, they'd only be they'd only win by nine. They were only up by six. Did he think that when they got the ball back with three point eight seconds left, they could have taken two three pointers? I mean, maybe that's humanly possible, but that's really stretching it. Uh, but he did have three point eight seconds. I would have just maybe taking another step in and taking a two-pointer. But, yeah, funny story. It amazes me that people would boo their winning team for not getting them Big Macs at the end. Hilarious. And I'm starving for McDonald's now. (laughs) 
All got, right. The other aside I had, I know we went really long, but yeah. something interesting to watch for in college football. Maryland football. This is going to be one of my things, but I'll just quickly throw it out there. Maryland football has lost four quarterbacks to injury. So this week, when they play, they're going to be using a linebacker from the practice squad to play quarterback, and his backup will be a tight end on the team. So just for morbid curiosity, if you want to watch the Maryland game, I wonder what the if Vegas had an over-under on passes thrown if, like, Five? Would you take the under in that game? They're going to be running all game, right? Yeah, you would think so. Good old Maryland football. God yep. bless it. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California. He is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com as a senior writer where he covers basketball, football, and baseball. He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, the Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's Best Sports Writer by The Village Voice. He is making an unprecedented 11th appearance on the podcast today. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Hey, how you doing? Doing really good. Excited to have you on today. We're a little late to the party, I know. Uh, the season has started, but we're anxious to get you on and talk a little bit about what this NBA season is going to be like. Um, kind of surprising start with the Harden trade. Um, and I saw a really interesting theory, I believe, by a Grantland writer who said that it might be that some teams are trying to wait out the heat and the Lakers right now, that the league is kind of admitting that the Heat and the Lakers are most likely going to win the championship and that maybe if they can wait a couple years to make their true run, that would be a better option for them. Do you believe in that theory? No, um, not really. I mean, it's, it's an interesting theory, but you know, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook's time is now, and I don't think you want to wait on those guys. Um, you know, They're inching into their prime. Oklahoma City could have won the championship last year. I mean, I know the series was only five games, um, but if you look back at the games before game five, they were close games. I mean, they hinged on a couple plays here or there, and the NBA is not like the NFL, where if you make it to the to the final game or the final round and fall short, um, that you're necessarily going to take a big step back the next year. I mean, really, it's the opposite. If you lose in the finals it often portends good things. I mean, look at the Lakers. They got drilled in the 2008 finals in Boston, um, came back and reeled off the next two championships. And I thought the Thunder, I, I picked them to win the title. Um, and then the Harden trade happened, and I had to back off of that. Um, and that in itself, I think, is just damning for the Thunder. I mean, if you're that close, if it's right there, and you have the guys to do it, um, you got to do it. you got to go for it. It's just these title shots are so precious and so rare especially for a small market like that they really had everything lined up um and you just have to ask i mean if you're a thunder fan you have to ask your owner um you know if he's really as serious as you'd want your owner to be because i think in that spot you know yeah the markets aren't comparable with like an like an la where you know jerry buss would keep the would keep the player he'd pay the seven million and dip a bit in the luxury tax to do it i get that the markets aren't similar but Oklahoma City makes a lot of money, and they're sold out every night. And it's a team that is, in some ways, transcended market size with those players. You know, just what cachet they had as a group. 
it's a shame, Steve. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I mean, it was just, they were a great story. They were building something truly special um, in a market that sort of mirrored them um, and I think embraced them. And to break it up, um, yeah, maybe they'll get there. And maybe in a few years, maybe they'll ride out this. I mean, I don't think the Lakers are by any means a cinch. I don't even think the Heat are a cinch. Um, but maybe they ride out this wave and, and are there to reap the rewards in a couple years. But you just can't take that kind of risk. It's like in, in pro sports, if, if the opportunity is there and the shot is there, you have to take it. Yeah. I mean, the perfect example of that, you know, is just uh, two championships in a row. Um, they lost to Duke. Help me with the mid-major basketball team. I don't know why I can't think of who it was, but they played in two consecutive championship games. Are they ever going to get a look at that again? You know, I don't know. Butler. Uh, oh, Butler. Yeah. Right, right. But um, let's start. Uh, okay, so interesting. So let's start with Miami, who you said isn't a cinch. If they're not a cinch, who are their main challengers in the East? Well, I mean, they have no challenges in the East. I mean, I'm not thinking. Okay. I think they're a cinch to get to the finals. I just don't know that they're a cinch to win it all. I mean, it's still, there's still an awful lot on LeBron James' shoulders. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a fine team. I mean, it's a good team, but they don't, um, they don't look to me like one of those. Well, they're just a diff, they're such a different team. They're almost positionless. You know, they don't have that electric point guard that pretty much every team in the NBA now has. They don't have um, the true center. So if you have like a really massive front line with some athleticism like the Lakers, you know that could potentially give them problems. I mean, at this point, they're they'd have to be considered the favorite, and, and maybe LeBron has just entered this stage where nothing else matters, and that can happen in the NBA. I mean, a player can become, especially a player like him, can become so dominant um, that he's just going to win the championship, and it doesn't necessarily matter that much who's around him. I mean, look, Chris Bosh is a great player, but you know Wade had a really up and down playoffs. He's coming off surgery. Um, you know, we don't really know yet if you still don't know, I think if he's kind of that elite player that we saw the past few years, or if he has taken, um, a step back. So they still have a, you know, a relatively clean shot to get to the finals. All I'm saying is that if the Thunder had run into them again in the finals, you know, the Heat would have gotten most of the, they would have been considered the favorites. Um, but I think it would have been a really tight series and tighter than last year's. And, And again, Four of those games were close last year. Yeah, who who is the the second best team in the East? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. As of right now, I mean the Knicks are playing well, and I'm not going to say they're the second best team. Um, I guess I'd still go with Boston. Um, I still go with Boston, although it, it does seem as though the Heat has figured out something about the Celtics. I think the Celtics, in so many years past, the last couple years past, had just they found a way to get under the heat skin to kind of rattle them and intimidate them. And, you know, they, and they, there, so there were some games where they, the heat probably lost games. They should have won. But it was interesting just watching that opener. And I don't want to take too much out of one game, um, but it definitely looked like some of those, uh, those tricks just didn't work. Like the heater, I think they, the Celtics have been demystified in some ways by the heat. Um, but look, they're still such a, a tough and resilient team. And, you know, Rajon Rondo, some of the things he did at the end of last year's playoffs, especially his ability to, to shoot a little bit more, if he can kind of, and I know this has been a big if for him ever since he came in the league almost, but if he can kind of improve a bit as far as mid-range jumper, which it seemed like he was doing in the playoffs, that changes everything 
for the Celtics. And look, they're putting together a lot of new pieces too, or integrating some new pieces and don't have Ray Allen. Um, so that's still a team that I think could get better by the end of the season. And they, they, they can muck it up with the Heat and make the Heat a little bit uncomfortable. You just wonder if the Heat are just have moved past that and, and, and to a point where maybe it, maybe the mucking it up doesn't really affect them the way it did. So in your opinion, the Western Conference then is going to be the more interesting and competitive conference this year? Yeah, always. NBA? It always yeah. is. Yeah, and I mean, we talked a little bit about how many people are predicting the Lakers. San Antonio is off to a great start. Who are some of the other teams? Is Oklahoma City still in this mix, or did that trade cripple them? Who? What was that last thing you said, Steve? Uh, just, is Oklahoma City still in the mix, or did the trade just kind of take them out? Oh, I mean, it's yeah, they're lo- it's loaded. This is always superior, and I mean, or at least for the last several years has been, and it, it it is again, and then some. And I think that Oklahoma City deal, you know, kind of opened the path for a lot of teams. Some teams that, that probably felt as though they, you know, maybe could win a series, but not much more. It was like a little road opened, and then the Lakers struggled early. Um, so if you're a team like the Clippers or like San Antonio, um, there is a bit of a clearing now. And even Denver, they're another team that struggled, but they're you know they're pretty loaded up as well. So yeah, you can't sleep on San Antonio. I mean, they're so built for the regular season and, 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 and piling up these great records. I have no doubt that they will again. Um, and it's just going to be a jumble. One of these teams in the West is going to be severely disappointed in it. You know, if you take too long to gel, like the Lakers, you know, may, uh, given Nash's injury right now, they could find themselves with a seed that they don't really like come playoff time. Now, for a team like that, that may not matter. It probably doesn't matter that much having home court. Um, but th- that race, I mean, the Spurs just again off to such a fast start with that. While some of these other teams are gelling, you know, even the Clippers. I mean, they had a bad loss this week. They lost to Cleveland, um, but they have now. They're actually have more stability than the Lakers and the Thunder because they're not really having to, I mean, they're obviously not having to assimilate their starting five. And when you look at their depth, Steve, it's, it's really unlike any team in the NBA. I mean, they have massive, incredible depth, and which will only get better once they get Grant Hill and Chauncey Billups back. And when you look at their second unit, it's almost as good as some of those Eastern Conference team starters. Wow. You know, uh, one team that we talked a lot about last year as kind of a, I don't know if we, we kind of talked about him as a team on the rise or maybe a team that was just a little bit short was Minnesota. And they have some really interesting, I mean, when I look at their starting five, it's really interesting. There's a lot of names that jump off the page. The magazine predict them ninth, which is just short of the playoffs. Is this a team that can maybe take the next step and at least get to the playoffs this year? Yeah, I thought they would. I really thought they were a playoff team, but they keep getting unlucky with injuries. You know, they lost Kevin Love, and they don't. They won't have Rubio uh, probably until like Christmas or New Year's. And so, I mean, you've got two of the really their two bedrocks are injured, and they're again being in the West, you just can't you can't just tread water for six weeks, two months, and expect for it to be okay. I do think they'll be a good second half team and make a run out. I think they'll be really entertaining. Um, but you know, in the West, you have to be ready to go from the beginning. A team like that to make the playoffs, you have to be, you know, reach some level of consistency. They were a terrible second half team last year after getting off to a good start. I think they'll probably be the opposite this year. I'm like you. I, I like them a lot. I think you know they're really entertaining to watch. Um, they play a pretty brand of basketball. Rick Adelman. They haven't gotten a lot from Brandon Roy so far, and I think they were hoping. 
probably for a little bit more. Um, they have Kirilenko, they have Pekovic down down uh, in the middle, and he sort of made them a tougher team last year. So I'm with you. I think they're interesting, um, but now probably a couple of. And now with Houston emerging, you know, that's a team that could take one of those spots. You just don't have that many spots to go around because right. we talked about all those elite teams. There are about five of them. So it only leaves three other spots. Right. So it's just a, it's the wrong year to be an emerging team in the Western Conference. It's going to be a lot of teams who wish they played in the Eastern Conference. Maybe when we get to playoff time. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, cause you got look, you got you got the Thunder, the Lakers, the Spurs, and the Clippers and the Nuggets. Okay, those are five really good teams. So five teams that if they were in the East, you know, they'd probably be no worse than a two seed uh, potentially in the East. Those are all in the West. That only leaves you three more spots, and we're not, you know. Right. Dallas is usually hanging around there, and then you got, um, you know, you got Utah, which was in it last year. You got Houston, Memphis. Um, so it just it bogs up on you pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, another thing we talked about last year that I wanted to ask you about was a comment that Charles Barkley made about Blake Griffin and how, as good as he has been so far in his career, he hasn't totally learned how to be a great basketball player yet. I know it's only four games into the season; it's really early, but you're out there in LA. What do you think about Griffin's progress and, and where he can take his game this year? Yeah, I mean, it's not as fast as what people want to see. You know, they just want to see him become a more polished player, be able to hit a mid-range jumper, um, not just go up and dunk all the time and, and finish off lobs. And that's fair. I, I don't think he is improving at the rate um, people really want to see from him, including the Clippers. Um, but it's still pretty early. I mean, this is year three, and year three is usually when you see a pretty big jump. That was like the Derrick Rose year with his jump, and um, you usually do see that. So I think that there is some frustration that maybe Griffin hasn't uh, hasn't kind of taken that next step. But look, a lot of these guys, you know, they don't really – some guys learn to shoot better, I guess, as their NBA careers grass you know that's something rose did do that year when that year three jump but a lot of guys just don't and blake griffin isn't that skilled he's the opposite of kevin love he doesn't have those kind of um you know real solid fundamental skills it's an athletic game and it will work with chris paul and uh you know i still think they're very dangerous with him um but yeah i def i i do think you're right there's there's kind of a craving for him to take that next step and so far it doesn't look like he will i mean really the clippers deandre jordan may have made the biggest stride in the off season which is significant for them to have a center like that um who they can keep on the floor late in games but for griffin it looks like it's not that anybody waiting for that big jump may be disappointed this year do you think that lamar odom can revive his career at the clippers at all can revive his career yeah can he yeah, I think he can. Um, I, mean, I think he's somewhere at this point between what happened in 2010 when he won Sixth Man of the Year, um, 2010-11, and then last year, which was just a complete disaster, disaster yeah. in, in Dallas. You know, Lamar is a, a very sensitive guy, and I think environment means a lot to him and coaching staff, the people around him. Um, it's a pretty... It's actually a pretty supportive environment with the Clippers. It's where he started his career. It's really warm feelings about that franchise. It's always felt in some ways that he let them down um, early in his career, that he could have been a better leader and more mature guy then. So I, I, think he'll be, I think he'll be fine. I don't think he'll give them 
at all what he gave the Lakers or what Phil Jackson. I don't think any coach will ever be able to get out of him what Phil Jackson was able to to suck out of him. Um, but yeah, I, I think he'll be a productive part of just a remarkable second unit there. We talked a little bit about Blake Griffin and his development. What about a couple of these other last first overall picks, John Wall, Kyrie Irving, and it's probably too early to talk about the eyebrow in New Orleans just yet, but how do you see the progression yeah. of uh, John Wall and Kyrie Irving? Well, I'll start with the I'll start with the more positive situation. I mean, that's <laughs> Irving, and the, you know, I wrote about Irving last year. He's a uh, he's going to be great. I mean, he's just he's, he can do really. He doesn't have like one transcendent skill the way a lot of these young point guards do. He's just pretty solid everywhere. He can shoot a lot better than you know, maybe Westbrook or, like, Rose in the early days. He can also drive. I mean, they beat the Clippers here the other night in L.A., and he and Deion Waiters, that backcourt was phenomenal. I mean, they look like the real deal. So, I mean, Cleveland definitely has its backcourt of the future in place, and, you know, Irving will be a star. I mean, there are so many point guards who you can say that about, so it's not as though, you know, you get a free run to the all-star team or anything. He's got Rajon Rondo in that in that conference, and, and Rose, obviously. Um, but, you know, he, he's definitely the real deal. And I think that Cleveland, in some ways, well, in many ways, is building the right way around him. Tristan Thompson, they, that was a guy they spent a lottery pick on. He, you know, he's not developing as quickly. But if he can, you start to have the rustlings of, of something in Cleveland. As far as Wall, it's just been so bad. They've been so bad. And they've had so many guys who, you know, don't really play responsible, functional basketball. And so it's been hard for anybody to really evaluate John Wall. And I think in many ways he's been their franchise, but he has absolutely nothing around him. Um, so I guess you'd say he's been a disappointment to this point. But I talked to a scout about him, I remember, probably last spring. And he just said, it, I think most scouts are still high on him. Like if he were on the market, I think teams would really want him. There's just a feeling like, there's no way to evaluate him because it's been such an absolute mess there. Are they the worst team in the league? Well, I mean, you know, Charlotte only won seven games. So when you look right, right, when right. you look at the leap they have to make, it's so significant. And you know, the look, Bradley Beal isn't playing that well right now for the Wizards either. They're rookies, so I don't know that either team is all that improved. Charlotte's playing hard. They're going to be well coached, and I saw they beat you know, they beat the Pacers at home on opening night gives them a bit of a kickstart. I think they'll be like a, a pretty solid defensive team, but they just don't have any scoring. I mean, it's, it's, they got Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. That was their draft pick, and he's not going to be a marquee scorer. He's more of um, you know tough defender and a great complementary piece, but not that lead dog scorer. I mean, that's what they need to sort of get out of that basement. So it's probably them and the, them and the Wizards. I put the Wizards a tick ahead, ma- mainly because of Wall. Yeah. The Sportscasters are here with Lee Jenkins, uh, finishing up just a quick preview of the NBA season. You can follow Lee on Twitter at SI underscore Lee Jenkins, and he's settling back into his role uh, covering basketball. We Last time you were on, we talked a little bit about the anatomy of an NBA preview issue, and you talked to us a little bit about what it takes to put it together. And now that I've had it in my hands for a couple weeks and I've had a chance to read it, I'm just curious, maybe as a last thing, how just to get your opinion on how you thought it turned out this year and if you were pleased with it. Yeah, I'm really pleased with it. I loved it. I mean, I, I think we were able to do um, – you, you see a lot a lot of insight from scouts, 
which is something that um, you know some of our writers are really good at pulling together and have a lot of great contacts in the scouting community. So that's something you see, you know, insights from scouts on every team. As far as the two main features I did, um, you know, I thought we hit the most relevant person in the NBA right now, which is sometimes hard to do when it comes to access. Um, I'm not saying the best player, but the biggest story of the past year probably as far as all the nonsense was Dwight Howard and just the Lakers and the Lakers culture and how he'll fit into it and how it will rub off on him. So I was, you know, when you're able to get time with a person like that who's exceedingly relevant, um, with a team that's relevant, and you can get them on the cover and you can kind of get some insight into what's happening, you know, inside um, the Lakers facility as it pertains to Dwight and get some interesting stories about Howard and, you know, how he's acclimated to L.A. and how the Lakers may try to change him and how they won't change him and th- you know, things like that. That's always good. And then you try to have, and I think we talked about this last time, kind of more of a technical story, like something more human um, or team-oriented, which in this case was Howard and the Lakers, and then something more technical that pertains to the league in general and every team. And for that, we went with... Um, which is the preponderance of the pick and roll, which is, was at an all-time high last right. year. I mean, it's, it's, it's been you know, part of the NBA forever, um, Stockton Malone running the pick and roll, but it's just become so hot of control. I mean, teams running 70 a game and six pick and rolls per possession. I mean, it's, it's so much a part of what everyone does. And what made that story fun was that we found a guy who was, was a great prison to tell the story through, Damian Lillard, place for the Blazers, their, their great rookie, sixth overall pick, who's a four-year player at Weber State and essentially mastered the pick and roll while he was still in college. Um, and, in his, and the staff at Weber State wanted him to do that, um, allowed him to do it, helped teach it to him, knowing that it would help him make the adjustment to the NBA, boost his draft stock, all that kind of, all those kind of things. Um, because look, so many players in the NBA, point guard, these great point guards, so many of them are one and dones. They don't really learn a lot. They're not a lot of pick and roll being done in college. The idea, I think, for most of those college staffs is to maximize those kids while they're there for the one year, get to the Final Four or something like that. And for Lillard, it was just a different and probably more organic player development process. So he, you know, he, he runs pick and roll, and that's part of the reason the, Lake, the Blazers took him. He's a great pick and roll point guard. They needed that with LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, and you see the early returns this year. Lillard's doing great. He's probably, after a week, <laughs> favored to win the rookie of the year. And part of that is because he runs pick and roll really well. And when he comes off it, he can turn the corner on you, he can hit Aldridge, and he can shoot. And that's the main thing I learned about with the pick and roll is it all starts – with a point guard who can shoot. Because if you have to go over that screen, it gives them the first step to get to the hoop. And a guy like Lillard, who's not as blindingly quick as Westbrook or Rose, um, he is quick enough that if you go over the screen on him, he'll make you pay for it. All right, very last thing. We're in Buffalo here, and uh, a lot of people missing hockey. Hockey's not going to – it's very close to not going to be here at all this year. And those hockey fans are going to have to find something else, and it's going to be college basketball or the NBA. If it is the NBA, what is something you can tell a hockey fan that maybe casually follows the sport to to watch for, something to look for, some kind of hook that can draw them in besides just 
oh, let's see how Dwight Howard's doing on the Lakers or how LeBron's doing or how maybe Jeremy Lin or besides the big things, what's something that a hockey fan should maybe look for in the NBA that can kind of draw them in a little bit? Well, you know, I guess it's just the speed. It's just, I think the speed of the game, it's, it's, it's probably not as fast. You know, it's not, I mean, the NHL is such a fast game. Um, but I know that what hockey fans all when I was when I covered hockey, everybody hated that neutral zone trap. It yep. felt like it bogged everything down. It's like the early two thousands, and I think everybody likes when the game's open and it's free, um, and it's kind of up and down and loose. And that's really where the NBA is right now. I mean, it's not that those days of kind of dumping it down to a big guy and letting him lumber to the basket. It's just so over. It's it's so much about guards and perimeter play and and being fast and and there's really an intensity to it. And you know, I, I don't know who I give the credit to. A little bit Kevin Garnett, but kind of that period of Iverson when you know in the late '90s, early 2000s, when everybody complained that the NBA guys weren't trying hard. There wasn't a lot of intensity. You know, I don't really see that. Um, honestly, maybe it's because I have a good seat for a lot of these games. Um, but there's a lot of it's a lot of up and down. It's a lot of running. It's a lot of intensity right out of the box. I don't think you would have these guys all trying to shift teams all the time. And they're not doing that necessarily to make more money. They're doing it to get cleaner shots, championships. And so I think there's an overall intensity and speed to the league right now. Um, that I think would be appealing for any fan. That whole stereotype about guys kind of dogging it in the NBA, that seems pretty much over to me. Thank you so much for fitting us in and doing this today, Lee. We always appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Thank Take you. care. Yep. All right, I want to thank Lee Jenkins for making an unprecedented 11th appearance on the podcast and helping us preview the NBA season. Uh, a little bit late on that, but we got the NBA preview in. Uh, real quick book club update. I want to mention one more time our book club book of the month. Uh, last month was the best American sports writing uh, for 2012. Michael Wilbon, the editor, Glenn Stout, the series editor. We've had a long uh, connection with this book and uh, with the people who run it. And there's some great stuff in it from people who have appeared on this show, including two articles from S.L. Price. And if you're interested in finding out more about the articles that Price wrote for this book, you can listen to Season 3, Episode 1, which we aired last week, and we had an interview with Mr. Price about that. Also, there's interviews from uh, Tim Layden and Tommy Tomlinson, who have both been on this show before, or articles, not interviews, excuse me. And uh, it's a really good addition. We're looking for something new. Now, I'm going to float this out. I was thinking about maybe making the book club book of the month for November, the new book by Bill O'Reilly about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, the Lincoln book, Killing Lincoln, is like still on the New York Times bestseller list a year later and did really well. And this is the follow-up. And it, I know it's different. It's, it's not what we normally do. But it's November. Uh, November 22nd is the date that Kennedy was assassinated. So obviously it was good timing and putting this book out. So let me know what you think. Send me an email to sportscasters at gmail.com. And if you guys are into it, I think it might be fun uh, to do something a little different. 
So let's see if you're into it, and maybe we'll try that, and we'll let you know what we decide next week. Uh, we'll be right back with John Wertheim. Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting the New York Times best-selling book, Scorecasting, the hidden influences between how sports are played and games are won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. Uh, he is returned from a trip to London in the summer to cover the Olympics. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He is making his 10th appearance on the show today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the great John Wertheim. How you doing, John? Good. How you doing? Oh, doing very good. Uh, better than you, I guess. Buffalo's staying, uh, staying dry, and you're getting snow up in New York, huh? Just say we just got out from under, uh, just got our power back, and now I'm looking out the window here, and it's it's snowing again. So it's been it's been a rough late October, uh, early November here in the two one two area code, but we'll we'll be all right. You know, we have the uh, we have the two podcasts right now. We have our one that we built from the ground up, the one that you're talking on right now, which we now call the Sportscasters proper. And we have a second one that the people at Football Nation are good enough to pay us to do. And today on that version of the show, we had Richard Deitch, and um, we got into talking to Richard a little bit about the Sports Illustrated show on NBC or the NBC Sports Network, depending on what airing it is. And he had some interesting opinions on it, and I wanted to see how you think the show has been doing in, what, has there been four episodes now or three? Uh. I think five, actually. Oh, is it five? At least four. Yeah, at yeah. least four. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the show so far? Um, You've been a big part great. of it. Yeah, I've, I've been, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of them, and I think I'm doing a segment for the next show, and no, it's great. I mean, there's so many times where you go out on assignment and you say, man, this would be a great TV segment, or this would, this would be great to do a real sports-type segment. And it's something that has been discussed internally for a while, and it seemed as though we needed a partner. And um, you know, for whatever reason, it, it never really happened at Real Sports. And now, you know, NBC Sports Network came along, and I think um, you know, I think think we got something here. Now, what what you said is something that's really interesting to me, and that's that at times you get the feeling that a story needs more. And we talked to S.L. Price last week, and he's in the process of turning a story he wrote about El Equipa football into a book. Uh, Chris Ballard has recently turned a story from the pages of your magazine into a, a great book. What is it about, let's just say, the Chris Cluey story that made you think this would be great for our TV show? Yeah, I mean, these stories come in different kinds. So sometimes you just sort of have a good narrative. You just sort of have a good story. You know, Chris, Chris Ballard's piece, um, last time, um, you know, sometimes there's sort of a, a beginning, middle, and end, and it, it's good for storytelling. Other times you just get a character like Chris Cluey, where you have access, which is something you don't always get, you know, in, in media these days, and you've got someone who would, would translate well to the screen, and someone who's happy to tell their story, and this, that was a case where it wasn't necessarily a you know, typical storytelling, and it wasn't really an investigation. It was just sort of, here's this charismatic figure who, 
you know, we, we ought to put in front of a camera because it makes for a good magazine profile, but it's also someone that would good make for, uh, you know, a, a good segment on, on television. How did you, did you have fun geeking out, so to speak, with Cluey? Did you... Oh, it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in, um, you know, I mean, he, by, by now everybody sort of knows the story, but we'd been communicating, I think, in September. You know, he, he'd written his pieces for Deadspin, and we had a little email exchange going, and I said, you know, we we got to do something on this guy. And uh, he was great. I mean, it's not often you interview an athlete and you sort of sit there and you talk about science and you talk about politics <laughs> and you may or may not talk a little sports. I mean, one thing that was funny about Chris Cluey, here's this NFL player. He's been in the league eight years, and he knows virtually nothing about sports. I mean, he has no interest. He gets out there and he punches the ball. But I, I don't even know if this, this made it in the piece, but his dad told me a story where his dad's a big fan, and his dad said at one point, can you name all the teams in your division? And he said, what division are we in again? Oh, no. Um, so it was, it was really funny to spend time. You know, in a lot of cases, these athletes, they sort of they, they are what they do. And, and I don't say that pejoratively. I mean, you know, it takes an awful lot of dedication, and it, it's very understandable how when you're – committed to being a professional athlete you don't have time to read books and you know watch tons of movies and have interest in astronomy and physics and read the economist but here here was a case where chris cluey just sort of the, the job was like uh, a middle management job for some of us where it was just something you do and it pays the bills and it's, it's what he's good at but it was you know f- football is hardly his passion he was a lot more passionate talking about the election and politics and uh you know, even the history, it was, it was this wide-ranging discussion, and every now and then you had to remember it was an NFL player you were talking to and not just, uh, you know, not just a friend. <laughs> That's it's, it's funny. How did he, for someone who is so barely interested in football, end up being an NFL punter? Like, how did he even know that he had talent for it? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, he, he's a speed reader. So he he's incredibly, you know, he reads something like a, a page every 15 seconds. So if wow. you think about it, um, you know, there's there's a lot he's able to, uh, you know, he, he had no injury. He's learned to play learned to play the violin. He's a big guy. I mean, he's about 6'4 and has a real athlete's body. And as a kid, you know, his dad's a sports fan. And they sort of took him out and they said, hey, why don't you try kicking around this ball? And it turned out he, he had a great, you know, he had a great leg, played soccer, and then, um, you know, went on, punted and kicked it, uh, at UCLA, so it was almost sort of you know for all the, it, it almost makes you mad you know for all the uh, for all the people that would chop off limbs to right. be a professional <laughs> athlete. Here's a guy who would just as he would have been just as happy you know getting a PhD in geology or continuing with the violin. He's a teenager. He happens to realize that he has this this almost supernatural talent for kicking a ball, and that's uh, you know that's what. But he said you know he said the day I the day I retire from football, you know I'm I'm done. So uh, he's, he's, this is not somebody who's, you know, once once football's out of his life, it's out of his life, and he'll move on, and he'll he'll write the book he wants to write, or he'll keep going with the, the music and the band. But um, it was really funny to see an athlete. For all the athletes you see who are just so committed to what they do, it was funny to see an athlete who just sort of, you know, he's, he's perfectly professional about it, but this is not someone with a tremendous passion for uh, for sports. Did you, did you read his day in the life of an NFL punter? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. hysterical. So you, you get a sense of it through that as well. Now, so you guys brought that up. You don't think he's going to be making Favre-like comebacks then? <laughs> yeah, this, this is not a guy who's going to be uh, the volunteer, the volunteer special teams coach at a high school before he can uh, get on the coaching caravan. I thought he said an incredible thing in the piece where he kind of said, 
look at I I knew that if I could be an NFL punter, I would have more time for gaming. <laughs> yes, isn't that why most of us get into sports? Yeah, I mean it's but it's brilliant if you think about it. It's like wow, he found a way to get a job that would pay him well enough and take a, a, a minimal amount of time in his mind and will leave him with a lot of time to do the things he loves. So, good for him. Yeah, exactly. So, we are Penn State. One year later was another big part of the show. And uh, Penn State football has surprised me. I don't know if it surprised you with how competitive they've been this year, but uh, what are your thoughts one year later on the Penn State scandal and kind of where it stands? Yeah, I mean, first to that first question, I I think that we sometimes get a little carried away with sort of athletes, and we we forget how well they compartmentalize. So... um, you know, we always use, how could Kobe Bryant still score 40 points when earlier that day they took a deposition? Or how could he still play when his grandmother passed away the night before? And we, we sort of forget that athletes are in this, uh, this sort of in this, in this special headspace and in this special zone. I don't think that when these guys are going out there on the field, they're necessarily thinking about Jerry Sandusky and, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. But, you know, I mean, uh, Matt McGloin's a great story. I mean, I, th- I think there is a great story there with how these, these kids obviously lost a number of players to transferring. Uh, the coach has done a very nice job, and under immense distractions, the, t- the team has done well. But but I do think there's also this sense of, hey, it's great that the team's winning games. And, this you know, everybody thought this was going to be like the New Orleans Saints. So everybody thought this team was going to, uh, you know, they weren't going to win half their games. But I do think there is a sense of let's not get too carried away because it was this crazy blind excitement and passion for the football team that sort of contributed to this mess to begin with. So you, you do feel that there's sort of there's pleasure there, but there's restraint. Yeah, and I wonder, is it that they did lose some players like Justin, Justin Brown comes to mind to Oklahoma. They did lose some players, but is it that the sanctions and how stiff they are maybe haven't just caught up to them yet? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, too, that, uh, let, let's see when these things, exactly, when these sanctions kick in, you know, let, let's see where we are two, three years from now, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I think this is, in some ways, it's, it's, it's a nice, it's this community was due for some, for, for some good news and some good fortune, but at the same time, I, I do sense there's this unease with, you know, let's not celebrate this too much, because it was, when we started conflating our own well-being with the record of the football team, that's kind of what got us in trouble to begin with. Yeah, exactly. It's it's interesting because it's just the whole, you know, we are Penn State, and SI has done such a great job covering this on so many different levels, you and David getting down there really quickly, and some of the stuff that SL Price has done on it has been really good. Um, as a magazine, do you feel like you guys really – scored with the, that's not the right that's not the right thing at all let me let me back up do you guys feel like you did this story in a way that sports illustrated can really be proud of the work that you did on every level um that's that's a good question i mean i i think backing up i mean i think there's there's plenty that we don't like about the media and there's you know from skip baylor i mean you know you sort of name your topics and there's plenty of times where you can uh very justifiably criticize the media. I think this is one story where the media really got it right. I mean, the first few days there, there was a sense on Penn State of you guys are sensationalizing this and the media. Remember, it was the media truck that got overturned when they had that riot. There was this real sort of hostility and you guys are just doing this to sell papers and get ratings. 
But I think if you back up, this was a story that had to be covered. This implicated so much. I mean, this was about so much more than, you know, the, the sexual assault and the criminal charges. I mean, this was about power and institutions and sports and kids and vulnerability and cover-ups. And I, I think overall, the media really did itself right with this story. I mean, I think that it was the media was right to sort of jump on this and send the, the trucks and the helicopters that first week. I think that the the coverage was has been has been good in the past year. I don't think it's been sensationalized. And yeah, I mean, at Sports Illustrated, it, it's always a balance. I mean, this is uh, you could certainly make the case. I make the case. This is the biggest college scandal ever. Yes. And at the same time, you know, we're we're a year past it, and you you do want to say like we should spin this forward and at, at some level, you know, at, at some point you need to diminish your coverage and sort of get, get, get back to life. But, you know, I mean, when Graham Spanier gets indicted, that's still a story an hour later. So, I mean, it's, it's covering, it's been a balance, but, um, but no, I, I think the media overall has actually kind of done itself proud on, on this one. Yeah. And Costas did a great job with his interview of Sandusky too. I mean, I thought that that was another uh, brilliant aspect of as long as we're looking at it in general terms for the media I thought he really really just nailed that you know so uh did you go to with the NFL to London am I right about that or did you just uh, write about um, the yeah NFL no in I went to uh I did I went to a Premier League yes god that's hard to believe it was barely uh it was only 10 days ago yeah this was this was pre this was pre this was my pre Sandy life um <laughs> Yeah, I went to uh, I went to a Premier League game on a Saturday, and then the Rams uh, the Rams Patriots at Wembley Stadium on Sunday. So uh, yeah, I was thinking that I'd, uh, I that was the first NFL game I've been to this year. What, how do you think the NFL's grand experiment in London is doing at this point? Didn't seem like from the article I read that you wrote on dot com you think it's doing very well. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's a big I think it's a big ask, and I think I think honestly I think one of the things that makes the NFL so successful is that it's not a global sport. I mean, it's it's uniquely American, and the players are American, and they played in the U.S. and you don't worry about. I mean, I think that American sports fans can be sort of provincial, and when your point guard's name is Dragan and he's from Serbia, not all fans cotton to that. I mean, I think that. Um, you know, in, in some ways, the NFL's the sort of provincialism of the U.S. sports fan actually helps the NFL. Um, you know, I, I feel like the London thing felt like an exhibition. It, it was fun. Some fans understood it better than others. I think there was a lot of dead time, and no one was quite sure how. You know, in soccer and in, in you know European football, there's there's not you know, the plays continuous, and I think there was a lot of wait a second. They're taking a two minute break. We just had a two minute break. What do we do? Oh, hey, there here come the t-shirts getting shot out of the cannons and they're the cheerleaders i think that um it was a fun exhibition i don't think we were going to see an expansion team in london anytime soon if the nfl wants to go overseas and spread the brand around a little that's that's probably not a bad idea but you know when the nba has these overseas overseas events i think there's a real sense that at some point in time we may actually have teams there and i think at the with the nfl that's that's a bit more of a stretch this might not be a question you can answer, but it's always kind of bounced around my head. You know, the NFL's been doing these games in London, and now they're going to do two games next year. But when I look back at NFL Europe, which I guess wasn't necessarily that successful, most of the teams were in Germany, weren't they? Why don't they play a game in Germany? Why are they focused in 
so heavily on London? Oh, that's a great question. And the, the cynic, someone, a high-ranking football executive who I, I, I cannot name, has a theory that it's because sports wagering is so easy in London, and ah. we all know that you know gambling is um, you know no small consideration uh, with with the NFL. I mean, I, I think you know, look, London's this international city; it's this, this this global hub. They have a great venue with Wembley Stadium. NFL Europe was not a smashing success; it no longer exists. So, you know, may, maybe those markets prove that they're not huge football markets. I mean, I, th- I think London, it's a little less on the travel side. You save an hour on the time zone. I mean, I think they're, they're defensible explanations. But no, I'm, I'm with you. If you really want to, you know, you, you don't have the language problem, but I'm thinking the same thing. If you really are talking about global expansion and really going into new markets, wouldn't you put this in Prague? Wouldn't you put this in Barcelona before you put it in London? But, uh, you know, I, again, I got, I got the feeling that this was just sort of a, you know, it, it was a fun one-off event, and this was not as though, you know, the NFL sort of will get our beachhead in and we'll try and generate some more engagement among fans. But I, I don't think we're going to have, you know, the uh, the Philadelphia Eagles playing against the London, you know, pot pies anytime soon. <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that the Jacksonville Jaguars and their four straight appearances in there are going to stir up much like civic pride for the Jaguars in England. Yeah, I mean, it, it is worth pointing out that the uh, there are going to be two games next year. But you look, you sort of look at the, the Jaguars have become the team that are going to be London's team, and I think I think they're four four years they signed yeah, up to play. Games, but yeah. those are those are home dates for one of the, you know one of the the laggards in attendance. So it's it's not a, quite as though we're you know we're getting uh, Patriots against Giants in London. <laughs> How what was the Premier League experience like for you? Um, it was fast. I mean, I'm I'm not a huge soccer fan. Yeah, I can certainly see. Uh, you know, I, I see how people could get into it. Um, it. It was wild. I mean, it was sort of this rainy, dreary day, and no one was scored, and yet the atmosphere. Everybody was thrilled to be there, and there were sixty thousand fans, and they were all wearing their Arsenal scarves. Um, and it, it, it sounds so trite to say this, but you really do. I mean, you watch this from up close, and you have a huge. I mean, these guys are. You know, kicking the ball thirty yards and catching it on their foot in midair. I mean, the the gifts of soccer and the athleticism of the players and how much they ground they cover and how plays unfold. It's a totally different experience seeing it live. I could see how people get into it, but you know, I, I'm going to sound like the provincial American I was just mocking two minutes ago. But the absence of scoring is really something. I mean, you you watch a half of a sport and one team clearly outplays the other, and the score is nothing, nothing. And that's that's an experience I'm not uh, accustomed to. <laughs> uh, the sportscasters are here with John Wertheim, uh, his tenth appearance on the show. Uh, I'm not sure what we're supposed to give him for the tenth appearance. Like you know how with the anniversaries, there's like a certain thing for each one. I'm not really sure what the gift for tenth anniversary is, but we probably owe you that. Uh, you can find John on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. Thank you very much for doing the show again. We really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to having you on in eleventh time. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. 
All right, our thanks to John Wertheim for being on the show today. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, five on fantasy for this week. Uh, let's get started with the listener league. The game of the year is this week in the listener league. The men who knock eight and one with one thousand one hundred and sixty-three points on the season uh, play the backspacers eight and one with one thousand three hundred and seventy-nine points this season. Unfortunately for the men who knock, they don't have the best bye week luck this week. They're As, a Rogers team. Uh, they are RG three. Oh, Jordy Nelson. Um, and uh, Jones from Green Bay. James so Jones, yeah. three guys he usually plays out. Uh, Griffin and Nelson will be the bigger ones, although he might not have had Nelson anyway right. with the injury he has. And he will be able to uh, – I'm surprised he hasn't been playing uh, LaShore. He had Ingram in last week for the Saints. LaShore. So a big game there. And also, things are getting really tight uh, across the league, especially in the other division, your division, Don, where there's two teams at 5-4, and four, two at 4-5, and five, and one at 3-6. and six. So it should be really interesting. And uh, there is an 0-9 team, Manning Up, who I, I think has quit playing. Uh, but there's two teams in my division who will fight for the last playoff spot there, 1-5-4, and 1-3-6. and, one, three and six. So... Listener League, like we said last week, sorry about the people who quit. Nothing you can do about that when it's free. Uh, right. But uh, a good a good season again like we had last year. So that brings us to uh, pickups. Is there anything out there? Not really. Uh, but if you're scrambling, Shane Vereen, uh, Brandon Bolden had a huge game against the Bills. They play the Bills this week. So there's probably plenty of touches to go around there. And Vereen is somewhat of a touchdown Vulture, I guess, if you want to call him that. Uh, Emmanuel Sanders, if Antonio Brown doesn't play, could be a nice pickup. Ty Hilton from the Colts, if Donnie Avery's not going to play. Even if Donnie Avery does play and you're in a bind, Hilton's probably not a bad pickup. And Reese or Taiwan Jones, uh, Marcus or Marcellus Reese, I can't think of his first name. The two Raiders. Right, the two Raiders, because it's looking very much like Run DMC isn't going to play or uh, who's the backup? Goodson. So one of those guys is going to get some touches, if not both of them. So a couple other guys to mention: uh, Chris Ivory finally got some playing time in New Orleans. Yeah, that's scored bizarre. a touchdown and looked decent. Uh, not as bizarre as you think. He, he played because uh, well, t- or Sproles ink, broke his hand. Right, right. Uh, so that's got him in. But he ran well, and he's owning less than one percent of ESPN.com leagues. So he's probably available in your league. And if it you, just if you want to take a gamble. He he might be worth it. it to me. I mean, odd. Who ended up with the most carries in that game? Was it him? It was, it was all three of them. They pretty much split them. Oh, did they? Yeah, okay, they all got about forty yards. Because Ivory had the touchdown. More of a running back. I would have thought. Okay, Sproles is out. This means Pierre Thomas, who's a pretty good screen pass catcher, and he did get his screens. And Ingram had two catches out of the backfield as well. Yeah, so they're just playing it pretty much. James Starks, although he's not going to help you this week because right. they're on a bye. Uh, he made his first action this season last week so i wanted to mention that and um it's maybe not a pickup but if dwyer and redmond play for the steelers this week do you have an opinion on who would be a better start my guess is redmond only because i think he's probably a little healthier but other than that dwyer was was lights out for the last two weeks before he got hurt he had 100 200 yard games in a row for an offense that 
hasn't exactly been phenomenal. So he looked like the best of all the guys there when he was healthy, and then he got hurt. It's just the story of, it seems like, the Pittsburgh running back situation. And then one last kind of deeper find that we may have mentioned last week and didn't necessarily do much to reward you is just Ryan Broyles. Um, because, again, in Detroit, Nate Burleson's yeah. not going to be back. Those balls have to go somewhere. Sure, yep. All right, um, starts and sits. Uh, we did pretty good last week. Uh, I said Cam Newton to start against the Redskins. He had 21 points in ESPN standard scoring. Reggie Bush was my running back. He had 12 points in standard scoring, probably a little bit better in PPR. PPR. He had a touchdown, a really great touchdown run. Uh, and then my missed call was Jeremy Macklin. I should have said Deshaun Jackson. Right logic, wrong player. Um, Don, your sits were Andy Dalton, who had 14 points in a standard league. Pretty decent, I guess. But the guy, if you had Dalton and Newton and you followed us, you went the right way right. by seven points. Um, Darren McFadden was your running back, and he had next to nothing but injury aided that, yeah. by an injury. And then Hakeem Nix was your wide receiver. He had uh Two points. He's practically unusable. Uh, he might be like a flex in a deeper league. Nix is... He's fallen off since his injury. Yeah. And Cruz has really taken over. The problem with sitting him is the second you sit him, he's going to do what he did <laughs> Yeah. You know, he's going to have that 200-yard game or yeah, whatever. Yeah, maybe. Uh, my starts this week at quarterback. I, I've i watched Tony Romo because I have him in two leagues, so I've kind of been watching him a little more carefully than other guys I typically would. And... I don't think he's been that bad. Uh, a lot of the interceptions in the four interception games were balls that uh, looked like Romo is usually kind of a team guy, a pretty good team guy. But, boy, he looked at some of those receivers in that game, particularly Des Bryant, like what were you doing on that play? And uh, I think he has a decent week against Philadelphia. So I'm going to start Tony Romo. I'm not going to start Michael Vick. I know that it's tempting against Dallas. Um, and Harris from ESPN has him ranked seventh among quarterbacks. And I just don't see how Vic can accomplish anything from that position with the offensive line playing the way they are. So based on what I've seen from the Eagles this week, I would not go anywhere near starting Michael Vick. My running back start again, I look for trying to look for non-obvious guys. I mentioned him in the pickups is Shane Vereen. Basically the logic is just, like I said earlier, uh, Brandon Bolden did it to the Bills this year, and why why not Vereen? I know that he was might have been your first round pick, if not your second. But can you trust Jamal Charles this week uh, in Pittsburgh against the Steelers? The way that he's suddenly been pretty much ignored by his coaching staff. Yeah, he's a little banged up too. I wouldn't want it, so I'm staying away from Jamal Charles at running back this week. Yeah, I'm probably starting him because I have to, but. Boy, I'm just hoping he breaks out one of these weeks. It's weird with the coaching staff. I think with them. with him this week, if you're playing him, you're hoping he busts one. Right. Because he can do that at any time, like Chris Johnson did against the Bears. Yep. You start Chris Johnson against the Bears, you're just begging for that broken run, and yep. it happened all the way at the end of the game. My other start is another pickup I mentioned. Uh, obviously, this hinges on Antonio Brown not playing, but Emmanuel Sanders, uh, he would step right into Antonio Brown's role and – Ben likes to throw the ball a lot, so why not? Especially in a PPR league, he might get catches. Wallace is more the home run hitting type guy, as you saw in that just crazy touchdown catch he had. It looked like a harmless play that all of a sudden he just flipped on a switch and outran everybody. But I like Emmanuel Sanders, particularly in PPR leagues, and 
like I said, if Antonio Brown's out. All right, uh, I got some big names on my list this week, but at wide receiver, I'm going to stay away from Andre Johnson this week. Uh, they're playing Chicago. I know it's a big matchup. It's a night game. Uh, again, Harris has him at 10, um, which just seems crazy to me. The Bears have been really good on defense this year, and uh, I just – I mean, Andre Johnson has been – I'd start both really – I mean, l- listen, he's gone from 17 in week one to two in week two to 13 in week three to five, then a one, a seven, an eight. Last week he had a good game, eight catches for 118 and 11. So doesn't that mean he's due for a bad game again the way this <laughs> season has gone? He's obviously not the guy he used to be, at least not from a consistency level. I don't know and where I wouldn't want to start him against the Bears. I don't know where Harris ranks him, but I'd much rather start either Broncos wide receiver. He has uh Harris has Thomas at 6, so very high there That's compared to his others friends who have Thomas at 14, 11 and 14. And then the other Bronco receiver, which I assume Decker. you mean Decker, uh, he has a 12. So it's pretty close. But, yeah, yeah I'd rather start either of those guys, especially in a PPR league. All right, that's going to do it for 5 on Fantasy. We're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to preview the college basketball season with Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. <laughs> Our next guest was born and raised in the state of Wisconsin and is a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Today, living in Brooklyn, he is one of the most unique and visual sports writers in the country. He is a full-time college basketball writer for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, and his power rankings column for the website is the most unique power rankings column on the Internet. He, is, he writes a very popular blog during the NCAA tournament, and just took a road trip to the Olympics. He is making his sixth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Luke Wynn. What's up, Luke? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I did not realize sixth time. Sixth uh, who's, time. Who's the, lead, who's the leader? The leader is Lee Jenkins, who is making his 11th appearance on oh, this wow. same podcast uh, today. I'll never catch him, but <laughs> congrats to Lee Jenkins. Yeah, Lee's the man. Uh, so last time we talked to you, it was in a different role because you had just went to the Olympics and did some really great stuff there. But this time, I think we're back to talking about what most of the six appearances have been about, and that's your work with college basketball. And um, the college basketball season is here, and it might not affect true college basketball fans that much, but I think that at least for me, someone who's a Sabre season ticket holder and a hockey fan, this winter, basketball is going to be more prevalent for me at the pro and college level because I have to fill that void somehow. And oh, we'll, we'll welcome you aboard. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I will admit to being totally oblivious of what happens in hockey, so I feel none of it. <laughs> I know that's sad, that's sad but you know, you're everywhere, all the... All the hockey people are welcome aboard because we can use all the uh, regular season attention and readership that we can get. Um, it's it's nice. I, I guess sometimes there are people who only hop on this sport in March, but I really do think that there are. It is a worthwhile regular season, and I'm excited for it. So welcome, yeah, jump in. Okay, so here's what I know I've been missing by ignoring the sport, as you say, until March. Usually, I get on quicker than March. Usually, it's about Super Bowl time, but I know I've been missing really good non-conference stuff early in the season with different tournaments and things like that. 
what do I have to make sure I see in the beginning of the season that I might have missed in previous years? Well, it's not – I mean, I think that it's not necessarily an individual tournament. It's just that, that to me there's just so much intrigue at the start of the season in that you have, you know, you have teams that have been completely reformed like Kentucky, you know, your national championship team like Kentucky loses everyone and maybe in an old model of college basketball they would become irrelevant or, you know, kind of fall off the radar for a season. But they're, you know, a consensus top four team, if not, you know, some people is number one. And we have no idea who's necessarily going to be, you know, how they're going to play, uh, who's going to emerge as, their, as, you know, their, we don't know who, there's no consensus as to, like, who's their league scorer is yet, all those kind of things. I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of teams that, you could Kentucky is you know massively intriguing because they've started over completely and you know there are other teams at the top of at the top ten of the polls like a you know UCLA that potentially could come back and be a Final Four team with the recruiting class they have if Shabazz Muhammad gets eligible uh, you know there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether that will happen um, I li- I mean I just I like seeing the reformed new teams Kentucky UCLA um even like Kansas uh you know trying to kind of put new pieces together after losing Tyshawn Taylor and Thomas Robinson and that's like the intrigue to me early on more so than maybe like specific matchups I think it's very great for college basketball to see the Indiana Hoosiers at the top of the preseason polls it's been a while since I think the Indiana Hoosiers would be considered a national title favorite um Tell us a little bit about this Indiana team and what makes them the team that so I know Cody Zeller is, is probably the main reason, but what is it about this team that has made so many people zero in on them as potential national champions? A little bit of it is not having a clear number one team by default, and we kind of just all fell into putting Indiana there. Um, but, you know, Indiana, even though you know, they were only a Sweet 16 team last year, but they were were... I think people agreed one of the best offensive teams in the country and Cody Zeller is only going to get, you know, I think you usually see a leap made by big men, especially between freshman and sophomore seasons. And he was already very good. And, you know, I think we expect him to be maybe the most valuable offensive player in the country. And the question with them was that their defense, and I think they've added, um, you know, kind of like enough quality depth around them to, to step up defensively. They have, you know, a new, new point guard, Yogi Farrell, who is, you know, an elite recruit who can kind of take some of the ball handling pressure off of Jordan Hulls. Uh, and they have, you know, I think that you'll see guys like Victor Oladipo and Will She make strides this year. Uh, they're just a, they're just like a deeper, more well-rounded team than they were last year. And they have this tournament experience. Um, I think that they're just like, they are well positioned to make the leap from Sweet 16 team to, you know, actual, I think, you know, national title winner. You know, when I look at the top 10, uh, Sports Illustrated today put out a preseason top 25. And when I look at the top 10, I see a lot of teams that I'm comfortable with being top 10 college basketball teams. North Carolina State kind of jumps out to me. Tell me a little bit about what makes this team a top 10 favorite. <laughs> it's funny. I was looking at I put them really high, like number three, and then and some of these projection systems that have come out since then, you know, who I, who that are put out by guys I really trust, uh, you know, Ken Pomeroy and Dan Hanner um, and the guys at Team Rankings. And for the most part, they are not that high on North Carolina State because, uh, you know, they haven't, they didn't, perf- even though, you know, they won a few tournament games, they didn't perform at an insanely high level last year. Um, I, I just think that I'm high on the fact that 
you have all the right pieces. You have like a point guard who is kind of in Lorenzo Brown, who's on the verge of becoming a star. You have kind of a CJ Leslie who has made strides every year in terms of kind of like refining his game. And you're adding in McDonald's all Americans and Rodney Purvis and TJ Warren and Tyler Lewis in areas of need. You know, they needed, I thought they needed like a good scoring guard. Purvis can be that guy. Uh, you know, Warren is like a good wing. Lewis is a good backup point guard for Brown. I mean, and, you know, and they have Scott Wood, who's probably one of the best shooters in the country. And the pieces all seem like they're there. It's just that their past performance maybe doesn't suggest that of a title team or even a Final Four contender. And that's why the projection systems are so down. And that's the kind of intriguing thing in the preseason of like, you know, what is your eye test or your hopes for a certain roster and where does it kind of match up with their actual performance in past years and I think you'll see that with NC State and Michigan is the other team that I think that people maybe standard poll voters are pretty high on but projection systems aren't um so those those teams are to me like I mean you're right they're two of the most like intriguing teams to watch early on to see if they can like live up to it you know, it's interesting. I've been listening to some of these answers, and you're like, you know, well, we don't have a consensus, number one, so Indiana kind of fell to it. And then talking about NC State and, and Michigan and kind of how there's some disagreement between the pollsters and the statisticians. And it seems like that means that this might be a little bit wide open this year. Is there a team that doesn't appear in the top ten right now that you think can be a serious title contender come March? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I agree with you. Uh, wide open season. I mean, I, just because Indiana is number one doesn't mean there's like the massive amount of separation between them and other people in the country. Um, teams outside the top ten. You were talking about the AP poll. Uh, teams outside the top ten. Um, to me, uh, Missouri at fifteen is it's another wild card team. But even though they lost two of their best guards from last year, I think that I expect their defense to get better because the new front court of Lawrence Bowers, who's back from an injury, and Alex Oriaki, who was two seasons ago, an excellent defensive player at UConn, um, and with Phil Pressey and Mike Dixon around him, I think that if the pieces come together, that's a team with the kind of talent that can be top five. Um, so I really like them. Um, you know, there are teams like, I'm not saying title contender, but like there's a team like, like Notre Dame at 22, I think they have a potential to be a top 10 team. Um, outside and there's even a few teams that didn't even make the AP poll um that I think are very good I mean I'm I'm pretty surprised that VCU didn't they have to me the best and deepest uh I guess that's the deepest backcourt of any mid-major and uh, I think this could be like their best year under Shaka Smart um a team like Pittsburgh is very underrated outside the AP poll Tennessee I think has a great forward combo and uh, Jarnell Stokes and John Maiman and could kind of be a team that's like a dark horse in the SEC. So there's there's so little consensus that I think you could you may look back and laugh at some of the teams you know that we had in the preseason AP poll. Over the last couple of years, one of the trends in college basketball has been the closing of the gap between the majors and the mid majors. And I'm looking at the SI.com top 25 that was just posted today, and I think I just counted seven teams in the top 25 that are from a mid-major who are some of the teams that are the are the class of uh the mid-majors this year is it san diego state and creighton are those the best two well uh according to i mean to me i actually i mean i really like vcu like i said before just because right. i think they're better defensively than those teams creighton has a legitimate national player of the year candidate doug mcdermott um they 
can score about as well as anyone. But I mean, what held them back last year is they really, I, I, I think I said this, they had an offense like, uh, you know, an elite major conference team and they had a defense like a poor, you know, like a poor mid-major. And then they need to kind of bring up that level if they're going to actually break through and be, you know, a sweet 16 or elite eight team. So that's, that's why I have VCU highest just because I think I like the way they defend. I mean, San Diego state and Creighton both have better, bigger name players. I mean, Jamal Franklin is to me like one of the most productive guards in the country. And, and he and Chase Tapley and uh, Xavier Thames are, are probably one of the better, you know, I mean, that's an incredibly strong backcourt should they'll battle, um, UNLV in, in the Mountain West, but um, it's a it's a good year for mid majors, and we haven't even talked about Gonzaga. I mean, uh, they're they're loaded this year. This could be one of Mark Few's best teams. I know some some writers even had them pegged as a possible Final Four team. I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but uh, Kevin Pangos, who was their point guard last year, is kind of I think could have a breakthrough, and they just brought in um, a Polish center named. Uh, I may pronounce this incorrectly, but Shashemek Karnowski, uh, who would have been, he's kind of like the level of McDonald's All-American recruit, but they almost like snuck out of Poland. Um, <laughs> it was a major recruiting coup, and I think he's going to be valuable for them too. Um, you know, one lesson that I think we learned as a nation last night is to trust the people crunching the numbers. And I know that you are a guy who has brought number crunching to college basketball and anyone who reads your work knows that you study numbers and that you crunch numbers and that you believe in them um is there a team when you get to doing the work that you do that maybe you believe in more than uh, a more traditional uh college basketball analyst who maybe just looks for the eye test or maybe just fouls the other college basketball analysts or something like that? I mean, I, I think of one thing that we, that we do see is that, that the coaches who coach defense well statistically, uh, I think it's good to, I mean, I, it's kind of been one of my underlying philosophies, hopefully, is that you should almost trust them a little bit more in the preseason than, you know, some of the other teams, like their coaches, like, like Thad Mata at, at Ohio State has you know consistently produced excellent defenses, and I think Ohio State projects uh, you know pretty to be pretty good again, and you know that's why you know I have them like ahead of Michigan and you know to in the Big Ten, and I actually think that the gap between Indiana and Ohio State in the Big Ten isn't that big, just because you know the defensive quality that sometimes just gets overlooked when evaluating teams. It's fun to watch scoring. I mean, I agree with that, but you know there's certain. There's certain teams that guard really well that I think you can have faith in. Like, you know, uh, Kansas even Kansas will have a great defense again, even though they don't have the star power. Um, so there's certain teams you rely on that way um, that maybe get overlooked. The sportscasters are here talking about the beginning of the college basketball season with Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. You can follow Luke at Luke Wynn on Twitter. Uh, a couple kind of quick hitters here. Uh, I think they call it, for some reason, big four basketball out here in Buffalo, New York. And we're talking, <laughs> you're going to kill me with these. I know you, you love this. <laughs> you love this. We, we, we have fun with this last year. They listen, they call this the big four. And what that means is that Niagara. Okay. That's one of the big four. Canisius. Your expectation that I know more than 
a very little down about these teams. Well, maybe one of these teams is going to jump out, and you're going to be like, all right, that's a mid-major that can maybe challenge a little bit. My head only has so much space. I have to almost draw the line at... Is at it, uh, is I mean, I'm not saying I'm like unaware that they exist, but just realistically to not... Well, don't be ashamed as a college basketball analyst. You don't be ashamed to, to be un- off like fifty teams. <laughs> don't be ashamed to be unaware that they exist because nobody in yeah. Buffalo knows they exist. <laughs> so it's not it's not that big of a deal. I just wanted to throw in to just just mention the names and see if they ring any bells. UB, Niagara, Saint Bonaventure, and Niagara. Any of those teams on any kind of a radar for anything right now? Well, I mean, obviously Saint Bonaventure should have paid more attention to last year but i think that the you know with nicholson gone uh and the a10 being extremely strong this year uh you know i don't think it's going to be a year where they don't really contend for an ncaa tournament bid um it's kind of it's it's interesting for i mean i guess i would say bonaventure i mean i paid attention to last year because it's really a really good story them making the tournament but they're the kind of team that maybe gets hurt by this a10 expansion a little bit by adding in vcu and butler to kind of pushing them maybe down in the pecking order a little bit where it's easier for right like it's easier for them to kind of be in at you know fight for an at-large bid you know maybe win the a10 tournament but now uh you know it, it one really interesting thing to be to watch this year is just how the commit selection committee will regard this version of the A10. You know, will how how much were they willing to kind of expand their look at them and you know bring in at large bids? Because you look, look at that league. I mean, I think there's like five, you know, five, six, seven teams that should would be in my mind, you know, contend for a bid at least. So that'll be something to pay attention to in March. Well, you know, Luke, until you've been to the first Niagara Center in Buffalo and watch... That's me spinning your question. (laughs) Sorry. And watch Big Four basketball in front of 3,000 people in a 19,000-seat arena. I don't don't think you've fully experienced college basketball. All right, personal question for me, and this is another one that is probably just going to be an instant fail, but you know I like the Oklahoma Sooners. Um, Any chance that uh, the guy from UNLV hasn't gotten this team any closer to being a tournament team? I'm going to say no this year just no. because, uh, again, I mean, the Big 12 is not its not an easy league, and he's not. I don't think they're ready to make that breakthrough yet because they just haven't. You need to, like, recruit at, I think, a higher level. Because it, to me, the Big 12 is probably a six-bid league this year, and the cutoff is at Oklahoma State probably being the last, Oklahoma State or maybe Kansas State being the last ones in. And, and I would say Oklahoma is more like, you know, you have, I think, you know, you have two teams that will probably be very bad at the bottom in, in Texas Tech and TCU. And I think Oklahoma is kind of just, just above that. So it's just not, you need to, you're going to need to bring in a few, you know, I mean, you saw, you know, when Oklahoma was last relevant, it was you know Blake Griffin time. You, need, you don't necessarily need a Blake Griffin, but I think you do need to start landing, you know, kind of like an, a, to pitch a few kids on being like the core of a of a revival at Oklahoma. It's just not there right now. Yeah, we need another kid who has a really average brother um, <laughs> that we can recruit a couple years ahead of time. And then totally sell the family thing to the brother. That's Stephen Pledger is a, is a nice player, though. I mean, I don't think. I mean, you could do a lot worse than him as your as your go to guy. I mean, he's a pretty efficient scorer. Uh, I like him. I just don't think that there is the quality around him, you know, at mm-hmm. the moment to to even you know really contend for a tournament bid. That's all. 
I'm going to have to watch my uh, highest price videos uh, from his amazing career in France. While, uh, That's when, I mean, their, their model back then of mining the Juco ranks, I mean, that was like the Kelvin, you know, I mean. Yeah, like, with Nardahar especially, Nahara. Yeah, they, well, it wasn't it wasn't Hollis as well? I no, mean, he I played all four years. Played all four? Okay, sorry, yeah. but they, I'm trying to think of who the other guards were at the time were. I mean, it was just their specialty. I, I think thought Quantus they, White might have been a, yes, a Juco. Right, that, yeah, yeah um, but they, I thought that that was because of their geographic location, you know, just kind of like a proximity to a lot of good junior colleges around there, you know, north of you in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Um, I think it was a, it's a decent model for, like, filling out or building – filling a roster around a few stars so yeah well it's sad times there all right let's uh let's finish up with this last thing um if you gun to your head i know it's early people hate this but what would your final four be right now if i put a gun to your head i think i would do i mean i I do like indiana i'll put them there um and i think louisville's defense will be so good again that they'll find a way to get back, even if I don't necessarily think the regular season is going to be as pretty as their you know ranking expects. But I think they'll guard well enough to get back. Um, and then uh, to take a little bit of a step down, not too far. I mean, I think the Florida could actually get better uh, without Irvin Walker um, on the team. Maybe some like the scoring roles will get a little more defined. I think Kenny Boyden and Patrick Young could both have really good years. Uh, so Florida's a third team, and then. I think Arizona might be ready for a breakthrough this year. Uh, now that they've added Mark Lyons in and kind of stabilized their backcourt a little bit, and with all the talent they brought in the front court, they're going to be excellent there. And you know, Sean Miller is, I think, is pretty. You know, has proven himself as a strong offensive and defensive coach. Uh, and so, yeah, that would be my fourth: the Arizona breakthrough, um, first time in a while. Is the uh, SI College Basketball preview this week's issue or next week's? This week's, um, week's. I just put it, it, I just, I Instagram tweeted some covers, cover images yesterday of the four regional covers, which are Indiana, uh, Louisville, Syracuse, and Kansas. So people should probably start getting their mailboxes today if you subscribe today and tomorrow. Yeah, so I'll be getting the Syracuse one. And then during the season, you're going to be doing the power rankings column as usual, and then just filling in with some other stuff. So is there going to be something else? I don't think there's another there's another a like branded gimmick necessarily, but uh, I'll be I'll be on SI.com multiple times a week and and in the magazine, so plenty. All right, we look forward to it. Thank you for doing this, Luke. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, bud. All right, uh, we got to thank our guests today on the show, Luke Wynn, for previewing college basketball with us, uh, Lee Jenkins for previewing the NBA season, and John Wertheim for talking about all kinds of great things with us. We really appreciate all three of them appearing on the show. But don't forget, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find our website, www.sports-casters.com. Also, don't forget our other podcast at Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. This week, Richard Deitch is on the show, and they've made it 
extremely easy to find our podcasts on their website in the last couple of weeks. All you have to do is go to footballnation.com and click on the podcast tab at the top of the page and you'll be very uh, you'll be taken to a podcast area, which makes it very easy to find our podcasts. Also, don't forget that this podcast is available on Stitcher.com and also iTunes, where you can subscribe at both. And the football podcast is available at Podomatic.com and iTunes, where you can subscribe as well. Um, as for pick four, we started clean last week. And we went head-to-head in two games, and I went 2-0. Ugh. I had uh, LSU plus 9.5 over Alabama. Played out like I thought. Alabama win in the game, but LSU covering. The final was 21-17. We also went head-to-head in the Dolphins and Colts game. Uh, Colts were plus 1. They won the game outright 23-20. Let me say real quick about that game. And this, like I said, I won't talk. I said on the other podcast, I'm not going to talk too much about the Bills anymore because they're kind of irrelevant. But that's... That play that basically won the Colts the game is an example of why you just take shots deep. That corner just got lost. Like other than that, Miami probably wins that game. But the Hilton they, touchdown. Yeah, the yeah. corner gets a little bit lost. Actually, overruns the play a little bit. Hilton finds the ball and catches it. The Bills don't throw deep like that ever. But uh, they also have a quarterback who's got a noodle for an arm. Right. So, but yeah. Help. So that's why if you're not throwing deep every game, especially with the amount of times pass interference is called, you're you're being poorly coached. My third win was Saints minus three over the Eagles. Again, it played out like I thought. I, th- I thought the Saints would show up after a big loss, and they did. I, that game was 28-13. Foolishly, though, in my uh, bold prediction, I took a chance with the Chiefs to win out right over the Chargers, and they got humiliated 31-13. Yeah. Uh, Don won Lions minus 12 over the Jaguars. A really good call in his my bold, bold prediction. prediction. was it, huh? Yeah, 31-14 final, so the 12 points only gets Jacksonville up to 26. Uh, we mentioned the losses in the Dolphins and LSU game, and then you also uh, tried to give the Chiefs the benefit of the doubt, took the took 10 plus points, 10, yeah. and they couldn't do it. 31-10 was the final there. All right, the game of this game of the week this week we've talked about plenty is Texans-Bears. Uh, Bears at home getting or giving one point. Uh, Sunday night, ESPN. I'm going to take the Bears minus one at home. I like their defense a, a little bit better than the Texans. And other than their running back, I think I kind of like their offense a tiny bit better than the Texans too. They're very similar teams. Like I said, kind of over and over again, and especially on the other podcast, the Bears haven't played anybody yet. And when they did, they got embarrassed by Green Bay a little bit. So that part <laughs> makes me a little bit nervous. Well, but you I'm know what's gonna... interesting about that is both teams are 7-1, and one, right? Right. Both teams got embarrassed on national television in their loss. The Bears got embarrassed on Thursday Night Football against the Packers. Right, and it was a close game. I say embarrassed because, like, Cutler was yelling at his lineman. He got sacked, like, seven times. I mean, it was only, like, what was it, like, 21-10 or something like that. It wasn't, like, a total blowout, but But it was was clear. It was a clear clear Packers were better kind of a game. Yep. And the Texans, their loss was another embarrassment in their very first ever game on Sunday night football. And here they are again on Sunday night football. Oh, who was that? The giants or 49ers? Um, it was green Bay green- again, green Bay, oh, really? 42, 24. That's right. That's right. So both of these teams have one loss to green Bay in front of the national audience. And it didn't work out. This is only the second time Houston's ever been, on Sunday Night Football, and this time they don't have the advantage of being at Reliance Stadium. 
So I'm going to kind of follow the same logic as you. I don't know if I know enough what the difference between these two teams right. is. Yeah, they're just so yet. similar. So I'll just take the Bears at home. My worldwide leader, I'm going to go with the team I went against last week. The Colts are a three-point favorite on the road at the Jaguars. And, look, if you're giving just about any team in the league only three points against the Jaguars at this point, I'm going to take them. This is Thursday night game, so you may – be listening to this after this game already happened and you can call me an idiot or whatever if it's wrong, but I'm going to take the Colts minus three on the road. All right. Well, let's do this then because I took the Colts minus three on the road as my host choice. Okay. And my worldwide leader is Steelers minus 12 over the chiefs Monday night. I have no reason to believe that the chiefs can play that game within 12 points. They can't play the chargers within 12 points at home. I don't think that they can play the Steelers within 12 points on the road. So, how many? That's two primetime games in a row for the Chiefs. Right? Yes. What were they thinking with that schedule? I mean, I don't know, but they weren't thinking that they were going to do anything nice for the fans. All right, my host choice here. Maybe it's. Uh, I don't even think it's wishful thinking. The Saints are at home, or they haven't been great this year. I think they're two and two, but they're getting points plus three at the Falcons. I've said before, I don't know that the Falcons are for real. This is a division game. One of them throw out the record book type games. So give me the Saints at home. I think they're going to be really up for this game. Uh, I think there's like a lot of real hatred there for the Falcons. So I don't think it's going to be a walkover by any means. I mean, Vegas made the odds pretty pretty tight for two teams that have vastly different records for a reason. But give me the Saints plus three. That's 1 o'clock on Fox. That leads right into my bull prediction. I'm going to switch the line there. I'm going to take the Saints minus three. Against the Falcons, I know the Falcons are undefeated, and I know that the Falcons have two wide receivers on the outside that can really take advantage of an area yeah. where the Saints have struggled, and that is the deep ball. But you know what? The Saints can score with the Falcons, and I don't know if the Falcons have played a team yet that can honestly score with them. What is going to happen to the Falcons when they're in a 30-30 to game? Right. If it gets to that, I'm not... I'm not positive, but I'm a Saints fan, so screw it. I'm gonna take <laughs> I'm gonna take the Saints. But you know, if you, if you look at the Falcons game or the Falcons season, the team that has the best offense that they've played so far was Denver. But that was the second week of the season. Peyton Manning wasn't what he was now. And, and we, we've said on the podcast if that game goes another quarter, the Broncos probably win it too. Right? They, they, they got they such a bad start. Otherwise, the the Falcons have played the Chiefs. The Chargers, the Panthers, the Redskins, the Raiders, the Eagles, and the Cowboys. Any huge offensive juggernauts there? No. I don't think so. So what's going to happen when the Falcons play a team that can score? I don't know, but since I'm a Saints fan and not a Falcons fan, I swap that, and I'll lay the three and take the Saints. I'm going to give you a schedule real quick here. Uh, Pittsburgh at Atlanta, Houston, Oakland at New England, at San Diego, New Orleans, at Cincinnati. That's the schedule the Broncos have gone through right now to be 5-3. and three. Wow, impressive. They they lost to Houston and Atlanta and New England, so they've lost against the best teams they've played. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not trying to twist that too much. But that said, they've gone through a tough schedule, uh, and they've gotten better. They seem to be improving as it goes on. I think they might be the class of the East. It would be interesting to see them play Houston or New England now as opposed to when they played them and they couldn't get out of their own way early in those games. But I'm going to do what I did last week. Their line right now is minus four on the road at the Panthers. You don't like giving points on the road, but I'm going to 
triple that. I'm going to take the Broncos minus 12 at Carolina, 1 o'clock on CBS. And by the way, if you if you read that schedule out, they have San Diego, Kansas City, Tampa, Oakland, Baltimore, Cleveland, and Kansas City yeah, again. Yeah, they, they might not have another loss on that schedule. I mean, Baltimore At Baltimore would be, be the toughest game, and Tampa won't be easy. Right. So but maybe, other than that, I think they easily win every game. Yep. So if, let's say worst case scenario, they lost two of those games, that means six and two, and you're an eleven and five team. I think it's really possible too with how weak that division is. Come Baltimore because week fifteen with three games to go, they already might not really need that game. I mean, they could just bank on the Cleveland or Kansas. I mean, and they could bury San Diego right in a couple of weeks here. Yep. You know, and they got two games against Kansas City, which has got to make anyone happy. Plus, Cleveland is bad, so. Yeah, they're, I think they're maybe the class of the AFC. They're set up well. Yep. All right, thanks for uh, joining us today. You can cue the hip. All right. <laughs>